and advisor, CEO and founder of Human First Club. Mike Vacanti is my guest and he joins me on the line all the way from Minnesota, Minneapolis. Uh, uh, Mike, good evening to you. Thank you very much for joining us, sir. Really appreciate your time. Hello, Aubrey. I'm thrilled to be here with you. Thank you for making time for me. Excellent, excellent. Change. It's the it's the stuff of political campaigns. You know, people are always saying, you know, we need change. We want to see more change. And 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 we are always told to adapt or die. Um, we are told that the most in intelligent people are those that are able to anticipate uh, circumstances and change accordingly. Why is it that it's so difficult then, Mike, for us to change at any level of our lives? You said so many wonderful things at the beginning, and I heard before the break the Stephen Hawking quote of intelligence is the ability to change. Yep. I think that is very strong. And, and, and then when you put it in the political realm, Audrey, it, it certainly is a, a promise that's easy to fulfill, isn't it? We will experience change, that's for certain. Yeah. <laughs> and and we, we have difficulty from um, a human perspective is we like to embrace the comfort of what we know. Yeah. And so change being an indication of the things we don't know, then that, that sparks certain fear to a different degree for each individual person. But one thing is certain in context of, of society and um, political and economics is change will certainly be fluid. And in a business sense, I think we're seeing that it's even outpacing those, those other areas. And that's creating a, a lot of disruption and turmoil for people. If the understanding exists... Um, generally speaking, Mike, that change is going to come, whether it's going to be gradual, whether it's going to be sudden, whether it's going to be monolithic or, f or, or fluid. And we know that since the beginning of time, that's how time has rolled on through change. We've known this for the longest of time. Why is it that we are not teaching and understanding the fundamentality of change in a way that we are prepared for change as a species, as human beings? Such a, 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 a deep question, and I'll, I'll answer it in the, in the best frame that I can, Aubrey. Um, I think that over time, change has been at a relatively slower pace compared to what we're experiencing now, and I believe that technological advancements, advancements in our ability to communicate on a global scale, so the globalization and that connectedness is speeding up the pace of change, which over those centuries, over those generations, we have prepared to adapt to the change in a, in a reasonable relationship to our response. So change is mostly, um, it, you know, our adaptation was really response-driven, and it was within a reasonable period of time. I think that the rapid or the, the accelerating pace of change 
we're struggling getting ahead so our adaptation is based on vision rather than response. And I think we're caught in that paradigm right now. Wow, that's actually quite interesting. Give us a call, 011-883-0702. What issues of change are you struggling with? Yeah, love to take your calls. One of the big discussions in our country at the moment, Mike, as I believe it's probably uh, the same in your country, is the change in attitude and mindset that men specifically are faced with given the upward mobility, the rising voice of women, particularly in a country like ours that has very, very deep roots in traditional um, ways of thinking about gender roles, sex, and so forth. It's a very difficult time for us as men in our country. Are you finding the same thing in uh, the United States? Yes, I think as, as, as a gender, that certainly is a challenge. I know that um, it's, it's in a different place of change for many parts of the world. But over time, it, I mean, it wasn't that long in history where women in the United States were not voting. Yep. And um, other ethnicities didn't have rights. In, in our country, and, and that's all been, you know, ne- nearly within my lifetime. It, it, it wasn't, uh, you know, it was mid-last century that that was our state. And so um, it has moved forward at a very gradual pace. And I love the way that you framed it as a mindset, Aubrey, because that is where we have such a challenge to reconcile with our um, with our religious beliefs, with some of the, the core underpinnings of society, um, when when those become challenged, I think those take on a greater degree of of, of complexity, um, and, uh, and and I think that each country is experiencing that. Um, my hope is that we continue to evolve our mindset. Yeah. So we, we, we're talking about the fact that uh, change is here to stay, by the way. So give us a call on 8 on 011-883-0702 or 021-446-0567 with Mike Vacanti. He's a consultant. He's an advisor. And, uh, uh, and he's also the, oh, he's the advisor to the CEO and founder of Human First Club. And we are talking about the nature of change, the, the ubiquity of change, the, uh, the fact that it's always going to be here. And, and, and perhaps some of the problems we have is that we don't know how to deal with change. So clearly, Mike, one of the things that needs to happen is that we need to deal with mindset. What should the mindset be of somebody who understands the inevitability of change and how do we get there? I mean, I'm asking this question because, yeah, all of us in the world are struggling with the fact that our uh, relative comfort zones are being questioned. Uh, our our pre our pre or, or previously hold truths uh, about many different things are being questioned. The very ideas that have made us 
believe that there is a particular direction that the world and time travels are being challenged. Everything that we've ever thought was immutable and unquestionable is being questioned. And it is creating a lot of havoc in our minds, in our societies, in our economies, everywhere. Surely there needs to be a greater urgency, even as as you've put that because of technology, because of all of those things, the speed of change is happening faster. I would imagine that that intensifies the the crisis that comes about as a result of change under normal circumstances, and it's probably uh, bigger because of that speed. What sort of mindset should we be having, and why is there perhaps not such a an urgency to teach and make us understand how to get that mindset? I think that you ask a very profound question there, Aubrey, and and when we talk about teaching. I think it becomes, it really pulls it into, into light for us. When we think of you and I in our childhood and when we were able to um, play freely or when we started to learn and discover at the early age with, with arts and crafts or, you know, learning our first facts and figures and, and just experiencing the world with a very open mind because we, we were sponges. We were learning every day. There was something new. We'd make a new observation. And, and without having a solid framework to take in all that information, it was all experiential. Yeah. Over time, we, we, teach, we, we teach that ability. We teach that growth mindset right out of ourselves as we start to learn to fit in and adapt in society and to find belonging and to adjust to whatever um, uh, state of profession or life that we, that we are in. And over time we, we, find that we move away from that open or growth mindset and we fall into a closed or a rigid mindset. Our beliefs become something that we defend rather than explore. We view the world in actions and circumstances rather than go back and um, reset and rethink and renew those beliefs and behaviors. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, a short answer to a very, very uh, deep question is it's an open mindset rather than a closed mindset. And over time with our education and as we adapt to society, the tendency is to close our minds. Yeah. Somebody's just sent me a message to say that we are generally more receptive to change if it benefits us but of course if that change is such that it may change the status quo in a way that is going to disadvantage us in a way that we are perhaps going to lose our power in any particular um, realm of existence in a way that is going to make us lose our influence 
in a way that is going to make us look weak in any particular way, we tend not to be ready for that change. To what extent is the close-mindedness that you've just described a result of not the fear of the change, but rather the fear of the result of the change? Yes, that I think your your caller and the note sent in brings up a great point because incentive or reward certainly comes into play. And it's a really good example to play against what we were just speaking about with open mind, Aubrey, because um, when we talk about if it's, if it's belief-driven, if we're willing to go down to that layer, then... Yes, we can accept change because we're being rewarded for it, but does that truly align with our beliefs? And, and you know, that becomes a bit of a dilemma. Um, I don't think that really speaks to being open-minded because incentive can draw you away from your core belief, your your. Uh, our ability, my ability to to explore and experiment, um, and just lead us into you know comfort and pleasure. And I don't uh, um, I don't necessarily believe that speaks to the open mindedness. So so some of our beliefs, whether they are religious, whether they are political, whether they are just plain social are held precisely because they promise some sort of an incentive mike and and and, and maybe and maybe maybe help me if i'm if i'm understanding it wrongly so let's take some of our religious beliefs some of our religious beliefs have the message underlying that religious belief that if you believe what we say you've got to believe then you've got a heaven waiting for you <laughs> Or if you believe what we believe, then you are going to be part of a, a ruling uh, class. If you believe what we believe, then you are going to be um, endowed with all manner of, of power, whatever the case may be. So what, what I'm suggesting to you is that, is it not an open secret that our beliefs are precisely held because they hold that incentive and while it may seem to be the principled view that we should hold beliefs that are about about expanding our world views expanding our vision the reality is that we hold these beliefs precisely because they promise a particular reward yeah very, very interesting. I am thinking about that for a moment. It when we get to the point of base beliefs that are sometimes well, it's almost biological memory, yeah. and and it's it's passed from generation to generation. We're often um, in the point of religious or or social norms. Um, we are actually taught and instructed what those beliefs are, whether they exist within us or not. Ah. And I think that 
we see people all over the world in conflict with with that. Um, and to, you know, that conflict may be to reject and move away from that core belief that was that was demanded at some point. Um, and and then do we really challenge if, um, um, you know, I mean, people act very differently than their uh, stated beliefs would, would indicate. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll just point to, you know, I think sometimes we look at the way the financial markets operate and they have the ability to go extract value from the good work of people. And I don't know if that is based on a malicious intent or a core belief, but their actions can be detrimental to groups of people or certain societies or companies that, you know, are employing and feeding and, you know, creating health for many families. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the outcome of those actions may not align with their core beliefs. And, 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 I, and I think that is some of the conflict that we experience in I think you raise a very important distinction there, Mike, by saying that just because somebody says they believe something does not necessarily mean that they do. That many times we are not necessarily the authentic holders of a particular belief system, but rather very well-taught people. Um, Am I understanding you correctly? Yes. Yeah, I think you clarified that very well. Because because I, I think you're correct to say that when a particular change is as a result of our belief and we actually examine whether we really believe something or do we say we believe that thing because we know no other way of understanding reality then perhaps there is room to have the conversation that asks do you really believe what you say you believe or is it only because you don't have any other frame of reference uh, for the worldview that you say you have. I'm going to take a few calls because the calls are starting to come in uh, quite thick and fast. My guest is Mike Vacanti, consultant advisor. Uh, and uh, we're talking about change, the, uh, this thing called change, this, this dynamic called change at every level of our lives. Why is it that it's so difficult for us to change when we understand that change is here to stay? Uh, We're going to be talking about what sort of strategies we can put in place to be able to to be readily available to change and make it a positive experience. I'm going to be having that conversation with Mike in a few moments' time. Uh, But uh, Naresh is in Pretoria. Hi, Naresh. Your thoughts, your questions? Hello, uh, Aubrey. Yeah, hi, Naresh. Yeah, good and you, Aubrey. Our problem here, for me, uh, this is my perspective, I don't know if I'm going to make a difference here, yep. is that we, we, we have a problem in change. We're struggling to, to, to grasp in change. We've gone 25 years down now from uh, a system that was only, uh, that was, wasn't in place. So we've gone from a system of apartheid to change to democracy. And we, we not seem to be moving on 
with the change that we made. And, and people are left still where they are left today. If you look at uh, uh, what is happening in our country uh, at the moment, where we have problems with service delivery, then you have from one party to another party, uh, like the, the, the DA that is in power in one place, and, and they blame uh, the other one. Whereas whatever changes is to be made, we got to just make the changes and move on. We, we're still sitting in the same place, like I say. We, we find it very hard to, to grasp uh, the change that we, we had a bad system. We, we got a system now. We put that system in place and move on. I, I don't know if I'm making sense. No, yet. no, I, I think you're making a lot of sense. And, uh, and, and, and maybe let me, let me, let me try and uh, paraphrase so that Mike, who is in the United States, gets a better sense of you know, the, the, the realities of our political rea- uh, situation. Yeah. You know, Mike, we, we've, we've had a change from the old apartheid system into a democratic system um, that for many people feels like it has not delivered uh, what a lot of people envisaged that our uh, political system would deliver after the very repressive, oppressive uh, system of apartheid. In fact, there are some people, Mike, who are suggesting that apartheid was better in terms of service delivery uh, than the current system. And there's a lot of, of frustration and anger uh, because people are not experiencing the change that they thought they would experience in a democratic uh, system. And so sometimes yes. the, the the conversation becomes, actually, there's a problem with democracy. Now, I suppose the question that Naresh is asking is, the difference between change in our minds, what we envisage, and change in reality, how do we make those reconcile and how do we then lift ourselves out of the frustration that comes as a result of the disconnect between the two? And perhaps uh, let me know if I'm correct in, uh, in, in phrasing it that way, in, char- in characterizing the problem in the way that I have. Naresh, uh, are you satisfied with the way that I've sort of characterized the thing to Mike? Yes, yes, definitely uh, 100% right. But the other thing, the other point I, I want to make as well, uh, uh, Aubrey, is that we, we had nothing broken. Uh, you know, we never went through a tsunami yeah. that we have to start from the beginning again. Yeah. We just uh, took in one system and we put it into another system. And we've got everything in our hands. We've got, you name it, we've got finances, we've got yeah. everything. No, no, I hear you. Let, 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 let's hear what Mike has to say about that. Sure, uh, Naresh, sure. thanks very much. Look, sure. Mike, I'm, I'm not necessarily expecting you to make any detailed commentary on our political system, but, you know, whatever you know, give us a thought. What, what are some of the generic universal principles that are coming out of Naresh's question, and how do we address them? Yes, and Naresh, thank you for, for sharing and, and expressing that and asking the question. Um, it, it re- related to change, um, those engines move very slowly. So political and governmental um, control engines are the least adaptable to change. They then in our model that we were speaking of earlier saying they may actually be the least intelligent of all of us Mm. in their lack of ability to drive positive change. 
And I think we see that in political systems all over the world. And the news would clearly headlines from countries across the world, including the one that I'm sitting in here today, are in a state of upheaval. Mm. And the challenge we have is um, another piece that you brought up, Aubrey, which is what is the incentive for those in control to actually act and create change that does lift and empower all of the people and reach out to those more on the margins. Um, And so the belief system gets away from a political belief or a, a religious belief. It really becomes as human beings, do we believe that it is good to care for others? And, can we act on that innate ability to help others? And I'll go back to what I was saying earlier about in childhood, we might find ourselves, if we saw somebody in trouble or somebody get hurt, we may naturally respond and go over to help that person and care about them. Disregarding where they are from, what they look like, what, what, what family they're from or Or, or what country they're from. And over time, we're taught to discern you actually can't go help that person because of these legalistic beliefs we've put in place. And I will say that governments specifically lead us away from acting in our most basic instincts. They And uh, I I wish I could say that there was a system that could fix that other than it, it is the power to enable the innate beliefs and goodness of people. Yeah. And so I, my answer is actually just full of hope. Um, but I share the despair that, yeah, many are still suffering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the challenges that we are facing at the moment in our country are occasional and frequent or or growing infrequent um, attacks on people who happen not to be South Africans. Um, Sometimes the attacks are violent, sometimes, you know, um, and, and there is... And, and, and I know that it's not unique to South Africa, but it's one of the things that we are facing at the moment, and it is part of a very, very intense conversation in our country. Uh, and uh, it is the xenophobic sort of attacks that happen to people of uh, other countries, particularly other countries on the African continent. Yeah. So there are conversations about um, what we are calling Afrophobia rather than just xenophobia, a sort of a, a sort of self-hate by Africans who seem to be suspicious and afraid and um, uh, hold sentiments of negativity towards other Africans for uh, um, many, many reasons. And one of the, the issues that is arising out of that con- conversation, Mike, is what 
needs to happen. Oh, oh, one of the things that's coming, sorry. One of the things that's coming out of that conversation is that we shouldn't be xenophobic or Afrophobic because other Africans on the continent helped us as South Africans during our years of political struggle. And when you related the story of the child who naturally wants to go and help somebody, not because they are uh, of a particular ethnic group or because they hold a particular legalistic religious view of, of the other, that it happens naturally. One of the things that's happened is that a, a, a narrative has started to develop in our country that, no, we should not be xenophobic because these people helped us at a certain difficult time in our country. And one does not want to discount that, but it seems as though we want to help people and we want to avoid hurting them as a measure of the payment of political debt rather than a human responsibility to them that we have towards each other as human beings. Is, and here's my question, is the question of incentive in the way that we deal with change such that it has overridden our natural human sentiments that it always has to be about some sort of incentive, whether it's political debt paying, whether it is the, the aggrandizement of a particular uh, um, religious philosophy, what has happened to us that in order for us to change, there's got to be a, a carnal incentive rather than the incentive of humanity and our sentient connectedness, if you understand what I'm trying to say. Mm, I really do. And it's really an honor to be in this depth of a discussion with you, Aubrey. And, oh, thank um, you, Mike. And as Naresh brought up the question, um, you know, the, the conflict is very difficult on all of us. And, and, you know, you're expressing it in, in the terms that you're experiencing it. And when it moves into beyond discomfort and discord, but into violence, then, you know, that's a different level. In this com- country, we, we have a, a strong discord. We have the, um, some of that, that same um, challenge of accepting those from the outside and 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 immigration challenges and very differing beliefs and thoughts around that. And the natural state is to move into conflict about the difference and not look at resolution of the difference. And what strikes me the most about um, this discussion relative to the topic of change and our adaptability is... Um, do we have the ability to act with a forward view and a belief in the abundance and the and the and the wellness of all, or is it a scarcity mindset where we're going to stay in this what I'll call a comparative identity? Mm is one of the things that I think is 
is rising because of the awareness, because of the quickness of the communication cycles, and the exposure to so many different um, views. And, you know, here in the United States, we have um, constant bombarding of messaging that your, your worth is, is your wealth. And it is what you can express as a, um, a better position than the next person. And I believe that comparative identity and the scarcity beliefs are two of the big psychological challenges that we're facing. Yeah, yeah. I think I agree with you. That uh, if the mindset is one of, of scarcity versus that of abundance, we tend to gravitate yes. to a particular way of thinking. So how do we start to to push back the frontiers of scarcity even in our minds, Mike? Oh. Oh. That, that, I... I I believe this, and I will I will step into it, and hopefully I'm not stepping into a trap, Aubrey. But <laughs> I believe that, you know, in the core teachings of our societal ancestry, in the core teachings of our spiritual beliefs, that that peace and care and love is a core underpinning of human societies. And when we are able to slow down our minds and not be in a constant responsive state, because the stimulus to our circumstances is increasing in capacity and frequency. So it's going faster and it's more significant. And we aren't equipped to respond to all of those circumstances. And so falling back into a state of addressing our lives, living in love and to slow it down to understand our determining if our actions are aligned with our um, core beliefs and if our behaviors are aligned with those core beliefs. And I don't think we pause long enough to operate with the discernment to do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. We, 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 we're not silent long enough, uh, Mike. We don't silent long enough. That's Let's talk so to well. Tulani in Jabavu. Hi, Tulani. Hi, bro. Yeah, uh, go, go for it, Tulani. You know, it, it, it is strange that beyond the 20th uh, century, we are being given lecture about change when we've been in bondage for so many years and 
the very same people who are said to have contributed towards our release from bondage, they have not even begin to talk about talk to us about what change are they referring to. And the very same change does it applies to us owing to IMF and that for so many years those who know better have had uh, ammunition being um, given to those who have put us in bondage for so many years. Let me just get my, my bearings here. Who is us and who is they? By us, we, uh, I'm talking about the same uh, black continent that we are always referred to. That is us. Who, who has African referred continent. you? Who has referred you as the black continent? I'm of a view that we are always referred to as a, a, a dark continent. By whom? Which is Africa, by the world at large. All right. And 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 who are those that are lecturing you about change? I'm I'm, I'm listening to the guest that you have for today, who's talking about change. And how does that change, what does that change means to a child that is sitting in Cape Town with an empty belly? How does that change imply to the children that are suffering in the entire continent? How does that apply? Uh, what does it say to them? Do they even know what change is about and what change is being referred to? So who are you posing that question to? I'm posing it to your guest. All right. Mike, uh, I'm not sure whether that's a fair question to you, but uh, uh, if you're willing to to um, to, uh, to, to, to deal with it. To be fair, I'm, just, I'm, I'm using it. Yeah. I'm, I'm a farm boy. I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, but you, you see, Tulani, you, you seem to be attaching, um, and I don't know whether... You seem to be attaching the blame of what has happened to uh, to the African continent on an individual, my guest. The party I, knows better. I'm, he, I'm he, he all right, all right, all right. Let, let's hear what look, Mike. I, 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 I'm happy for you to answer that question if you're comfortable with it. Yeah. No, as 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 much as I truly appreciate you helping me. Yeah. And and giving me that that space to to um, um, uh, be comfortable. Um, fairness is, is a hard one, right? And and um, I I will say that I really hope that I don't come off to the listeners as being lecturing, because certainly that is not the place that I'm coming from. Um, I believe in addressing the challenges we have so we can find solutions that seemingly don't exist because many are suffering. And there's no way to diminish the value and the truth of somebody's experience. And being in a position where change doesn't even feel like a choice is unimaginable. And I empathize with that 
truly I empathize with that. And to take the mindset of a me, white male in the United States, and, and open up empathy to truly honor the question and the experience that others are having, that becomes the essence of where we must go to affect positive change. And it's changing the mindset of those that I grew up with and are surrounded by that maybe won't go to that open-minded state to be in a position to help and care and have those open discussions. So I very much honor the question. I don't feel it as fair or unfair. I believe that living in that experience that there is lack of choice to choose positive change is 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 an indication of how far we have to go and why it's so important to address it and how thankful I am, Aubrey, for bringing up this topic and allowing this conversation. Do you feel answered, Tulani? Well, uh, I hear him with empathy, but I think one needs to begin to say we have more challenges in Africa which are not of our own that we are made to have an, an empty dish and say to those who have money they must support us in Africa while they are feeding on this very same wealth that we have in Africa but it doesn't wash with me because I'm a farm boy I, I went to school because my parents have to sell cows, cattle, for me to go to school, that I'm able to listen to this uh, conversation now. But there are other children that comes after me that, you know, they always ask themselves, but why do we find ourselves in the very same situation when we have wealth in our country? And why are we measured and compared to all others in the world when we are still in the very same situation that we find ourselves in that we've never asked for. Why do we have wars in Africa that involve people who come and take wealth from Africa? What does it mean to a child who lives in Town and in, 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 in a Shanti or in a Mkuku for that, for that matter? And that those who know better can still say we need change. Change of what? So, 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 what, 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 based on what Mike has said, do you think the solution is? For, for them, is that they go to IMF and tell IMF. Who's them? Aubrey, I'm of a view that. But, 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 but who is them? Who, what I'm trying to get, and, and I'm running out of time. Who is them? Who, who, who should go to the IMF? Those who know better. Who are, uh, who are they? Who, who, tell us who those people are. Your Moody's and those who rate us and those who supply arms to the entire continent. 
your Moody's, those who raped you, and those who supply arms to the entire continent. Yes. Tulani Jabavu, thanks very much for your call. Much appreciated. Well, Mike, I, I suppose that that question and those comments are indicative of many, many things. Do you think that you are qualified to be the person that answers that question on behalf of the Moody's, of those who've raped uh, uh, Tulani and and who those who know be- better? My heart is broken by those stories. I certainly, that that is beyond me, Aubrey. Um, so I, 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 I sit here in sadness, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think that it has been a fruitful conversation in many ways than one. Uh, and I think that it is indicative of not only a need for change that happens externally, but it is also a indicative of what we've been talking about uh, when we started the conversation, a mindset change uh, at many, many different levels. Mike, I want to thank you very much for honoring my invitation uh, to come and talk to us about this particular subject. Uh, any last words for you, from you? I want to thank you very much, Aubrey. I believe this stretched me it was a phenomenal, open, and real conversation, and I, I applaud you for creating that format for such dialogue. Thank you so much. I hope we speak again. Mike Viganti, consultant, advisor, uh, and uh, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Aubrey. Right. It's midnight. Time for Eyewitness News.